following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. I invite you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to uh, Matthew chapter 6, the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, and I'd like to take a moment before we dig in to speak to the author of this text. We were just talking a little while ago about pastoral prayer. Uh, Some of the courses I teach, uh, one of which is a theology course, and we spend about three hours talking about God. But I think it would be a mistake to just launch in and start talking about him before speaking to him, right? Because that makes theology come alive, because at the end of the day, we're talking about a person. And so let's take a moment to speak to our great God in prayer, and then we'll hear what he has to say to us. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you for breathing out this portion of Scripture. All of your word is inspired, breathed out by you without error. And all of it is authoritative over our lives, and we're glad about that. From this book, it's more than a book, but from your word, we can learn what we should believe, we can learn how we should live, we can learn how we should relate to one another, those who know Christ and even those who do not, and we can learn how to worship you. How blessed we are that you did not leave us clueless, it's all right here. And so, forgive us, Lord, for the times when we choose to remain in ignorance by not opening up your word, when it's here right before us. There are people around the globe who would do anything to have one page of scripture they can hide under their pillow, and we've got it here in many translations. We ask your forgiveness, and I pray that you would give us all hearts inclined to your word, ears quick to hear, and then wills that are mollified and bent in your direction. We want to heed, hear, and obey the Word of God. We need your help for that, Holy Spirit. We acknowledge your presence in this room, and we pray that you would give us what we need in terms of spiritual resources to live out what is here. These are challenging words, and yet they are doable, if I can put it that way, through your Spirit. And so, dear God, bless, stretch, grow us, And by the time we leave, I pray that we can all say sincerely that yes, in fact, it is well with my soul. Be glorified in the next few moments. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and all my brothers and sisters said, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Matthew chapter 6. If you were to log on to a search engine, and I don't uh, want you to do that just now so you don't get distracted. Um... But if you were to do that and type in the word worry, W-O-R-R-Y, guess how many listings you would see there? And you wouldn't have time to go through them all. I did it recently, and it changes from day to day. Uh, I came up with one, four, three, zero, 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 zero. That's translated 1,430,000,000. Now, I'm sure it changes from day to day, but I'm sure it always stays over 1,000,000,000. I think that's safe to say. And these are people all around the world searching the word 
worry, because they're probably looking for a cure. In other words, this is part of our experience in this fallen world. I didn't say it's normal, because it's not. But it's common, right? The one who put us together from the inside out, the Lord Jesus, the master engineer, he knows what makes us tick, and he knows what causes us to malfunction. And worry is one of the things that causes us to malfunction. To malfunction like my throat is right now until I get a drink of this H2O, which God also created. I don't know about the plastic bottle if he created that, but nevertheless... Did you ever notice whatever you eat or drink, you always end with water anyway? So uh, with that said, the point I wanted to make about that search is we're talking about something here that is so, so common, we might think that, hey, what's, what's the deal? Everybody worries. I guess it's good. Well, everybody sins. Is that good? So let's think about it together. Again, obviously, it's pervasive in our society. Is it normal to worry? Because that's what most people think. After all, is it not normal to worry about making the grade in school or losing a job or having enough resources to survive retirement? Is it not normal to worry about a failing marriage, being rejected by peers and feeling isolated, or facing the future alone? Is it not normal to worry about crime on the streets, declining health, or getting smothered in debt during a bad economy? And I can go on and on with the list, but I don't want us to get depressed. I think at this point, it'd probably be a good idea to pause and think through the difference between concern and worry, because this is on a sliding spectrum, if you will. And often when we talk about worry, people say, yeah, but shouldn't we be concerned? I would say yes, because one extreme is apathy. We don't want that. The other extreme is totally freaking out where everything's falling apart as if there is no sovereign God in our universe. Both of those are the extreme poles. We want to be somewhere in the healthy middle, right? So here's a definition of concern. Nothing fancy about it. It's not inspired, but here it is. What is concern? To have, hear the word, a healthy interest in something that is important to you. To have a healthy interest in something that is important to you. So then what is worry? Well, by contrast, worry is to become anxious over disturbing thoughts that may or may not come to pass. Worry, I believe, honestly, is a form of of, hear it now, self-torment, if left unchecked, right? What is worry? Again, to become anxious over disturbing thoughts that may or may not come to pass. And often they don't come to pass, right? Now, if you were to check out that word, the word worry has a German cognate, Vergen, I think it's translated, W-U-R-G-E-N, Vergen. And that word means to strangle, And that's a beautiful word picture of what we're talking about here because if you think about it, again, worry unchecked tends to strangle our thoughts. It chokes our emotions and it even devours our physical health. And so, the great physician, 
out of compassion for our kind of pathetic condition, does this. Out of love for us, he exposes worry, shows us what it really is, and then once we see what it really is, he issues a command. Very simply, the command is, do not worry. Three words. Do not Worry. Now, you're ready, you're worried about that because you know you're going to worry. How do, I, how do I possibly stop, cease from worrying? Well, we're going to talk about that. But that's essentially, in a nutshell, that's what he's saying here. Do not worry. The question is why? Why should we not worry? Jesus, I want to stop worrying. I, I need some motivation. Can you give me some reasons why I should not worry? And he's going to do just that. Again, out of love for us. He's aware of our condition. Remember, he was down here. He rubbed elbows with the likes of us. He knows what our experience is all about. And he cares probably more than we do about the things we face and how we respond to them. So what are some of these reasons why we should not worry? I'm glad you asked that question. You're a very intelligent audience. The jury's still out on the speaker, but the audience is intelligent. I'm glad about that. So here's the first reason why we should not worry, and that is because worry is unreasonable. We're going to think this through together, okay? Worry is unreasonable. In fact, if you look with me, we're in chapter 6 of Matthew. If you're not there, please turn. Picking up at verse 25, these are all the words of Jesus. He says in verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Notice how he starts there, for this reason. What reason, Jesus? Look at verse 24. You'll see it. He says in verse 24, the latter part there, you cannot serve God and mammon, or we would say riches or money, right? You can't serve God and money at the same time. Only one of them can be your God. Therefore, since you can't, do not worry about serving riches. Serve God. He will supply your needs. Does God's bank account ever run out? I mean, he has an infinite source of riches, right? And he'll give us what we need, and he'll withhold what we don't need. For some of us, too much is too much, and it'll destroy us, and he knows that. And out of love, he won't give us that stuff, right? But he'll give us what we need for sure, no doubt about it. So notice the logic here. He's reasoning from the greater to the lesser. Hear it? Is not life the greater more than food the lesser? That's very reasonable, isn't it? Is not your existence of more value than mere food? Think it through. What good is food to a dead person? You can bring boxes and boxes of food and put them by the tombstones at the cemetery. The only one that's going to eat that stuff is the vultures, the ants, and whatever else, right? Food is meant to sustain life, physical life. And so therefore, life is way more important than mere food. And then he says, and the body greater than clothing. So if God gave us the greater life, and a body, those are the greater, right? I'm sure he can give us the lesser, food and clothing, right? 
if somebody's going to give you a $20 bill, and then later you need five cents from them, I'm pretty sure they'll give you the five cents. They were generous enough to give you the $20, correct? He gave us life and a body. What's the evidence? I'm breathing, you're breathing. I see bodies out there. So he'll give us all the stuff we need to support the bigger things, right? Again, what, is, what good is clothing to a person who doesn't have a body if there is such a thing, right? It has to hang on something. So if you've got a body, you can assume he'll supply the clothing. Even if it's fig leaves, you'll still get something. All right, verse 26. Uh, by the way, Israel was sort of the, if you could check this out on the web, Israel is known for a voluminous amount of birds. For some reason, it's the crossroads of bird migration. They've got all kinds of birds, more so than probably most countries, right there, because that's kind of the path north, south, east, west. And so Jesus probably sees some birds flying by. And notice what he says there, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Think about it. Birds do not engage in a normal cycle of producing food, planting, harvesting, storing. I don't see birds do that stuff. And your, he says, there's the emphasis. Don't miss that word. You might want to underline that if you're in the habit of doing such. And your heavenly Father feeds them. And so with the act of creation, God assumed the responsibility to provide for his creatures. God assumed that responsibility. You mean I don't have to work? No, you still have to go to work and provide because he gave you the brains, the backbone, the health to hold down the job. But at the end of the day, it's his provision. If you have good health, even that's his gift, right? And so what he's saying here is, look at these birds. I mean, they're not doing anything to you know, do any farming. They gather enough for today. They trust their creator for tomorrow's provision. Maybe there's something we can learn even from the birds. And there it is. Again, I'm going to point out that word because it's easy to breeze right over it. Your heavenly father. He is, Christian, our father. We are his children. You say, so what else is new? Well, the birds can't say that. They only know him as creator. They don't know him as father or savior the way we do. And yet even the birds trust their creator. Now that's an implied rebuke to us. We know him as father and savior. They only know him as creator. Of course, we know him as creator as well. They trust him. How much more should we trust him, right? Uh, by the way, have you seen any birds flying around with ulcers or high blood pressure? <laughs> I haven't. Are you, the word's emphatic there for a reason, emphasis, are you not worth much more than they? Reasoning from the lesser, the birds, to the greater, which would be us humans. In God's eyes, we're worth far more than animals. Sorry to disappoint some of you, but it's true. I'm not saying animals are not of worth. I'm just saying animals and humans can claim God as creator, but only humans are made uniquely in the image of God. There's something special about us, right? And further, only saved humans enjoy that father-child relationship with the Creator. Verse 27, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life, or a single cubit, depending on your translation, that's one and a half feet roughly, 
that's used metaphorically. If you have the NIV, it's pretty clear there. It says a single hour. Who can add time to their life is really the question, right? To his lifespan. So it's unreasonable to think that anyone can lengthen their life by worrying. In fact, worrying does not lengthen life. What does it do? It shortens it, doesn't it? There's no doubt about it. You know, we can't worry ourselves to life, but we can worry ourselves to death, and some have, sadly, tragically. Dr. Charles Mayo of the famous Mayo Clinic way back said this, worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I have never known a man to die of overwork, but I have known a lot who died of worry. Worry accomplishes nothing good. Worry accomplishes no thing good. Now, you can see me after the service and correct me on that. Tell me how worry has been a help. But I'm not aware of anything it does that's good. It doesn't promote health. There's nothing good about it. And so, the next time you begin to worry, stop and ask yourself, do I really have a good reason to worry? It's just a question to ask. Sometimes we just get into that worry mode without even thinking about it. We just slide in. It's like a groove. You slide into it, and there you are. And that's why we see so many one billion and such and such hits on, on the web. Do I have good reason to worry? Or to paraphrase, do I have good reason to torment myself? You know the answer to that, right? And oh, worry is unreasonable. So Jesus, out of love, out of compassion, says, my child, please do not worry. Why, Jesus? Can you give me some reasons? Yes, I can, and yes, I will. And the first reason is worry is unreasonable. But there's another reason why we should not worry. And this one's strong. Get ready. Fasten your seatbelts. Worry is, dare I say the word, unbelief. Worry actually is, and that's why I want us to think about it. That's, Jesus is taking worry and putting it in the sunlight so we can see it for what it really is because it's such a comfortable teddy bear. We hug all the time. We don't get a good look at it. He's saying, here's your teddy bear in the sun. Take a look at it. Is this really something you want to do? It's unbelief. That's what he's saying. So again, look at verse 28 and notice what he says here. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Notice the phrase there, they do not toil nor spin. The word toil refers to laboring in the fields, collecting material for clothing. Lilies don't do such a thing. And they're pretty well decked out, aren't they? And then the phrase, they do not spin, that's the process of making clothing. The wildflowers have no part in adorning themselves. Somebody else clothes them. Who is it? Their creator, right? And then the great Solomon, a man of, seems like, limitless wealth. It says, even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these, meaning the lilies are better dressed than Solomon. Now, for your notes, if you want it, 2 Chronicles chapter 9 verses 23 and 24. 2 Cron 9, 23 and 24 says this, And all of the kings of the earth were seeking the presence of Solomon. Why? To hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. 
And this was a custom that they did just to pay honor, right? He probably fed them well, and they would bring gifts. And they brought every man, everybody who visited Solomon, notice what they gave him, articles of silver and gold, garments so much year by year. I mean, he must have had a limited, you know, unlimited amount of closets all around his palace, if you will. Way more clothes than he can wear in a lifetime. Solomon was one well-dressed dude. He had all the designer stuff. Help me out because I'm not a fashionable guy. Uh, what is it? Versace. Uh, help me out, somebody. What's all the fancy stuff? Versace, Armani, uh, Walmart, Kmart. You know, all the fancy stuff. The real high-quality high stuff, right? Under that blue light special. There's my shirt. There it is on sale. Two bucks. What a deal. Vinyl, of course. Yeah. So Solomon's regal wardrobe was no match for God's handiwork. The point is, the pristine beauty of these wildflowers, if you've ever seen them on the hills, I've been out to California, you see those beautiful golden poppies out there in the sun, just beautiful, stunning actually. Well, the beauty of those wildflowers cannot be improved upon. There's an old expression, some of you old timers like me will remember, you cannot gild the lily. Don't put gold on a lily, you're going to ruin it. It's too beautiful for that. Look at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, he called them lilies, now it's like grass of the field, it's like not worth a whole lot, it's temporary, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Ouch. So this grass of the field, these wildflowers, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, uh, by the way, uh, wood was very scarce in Israel. And so they had to use something to fire up the furnace, if you will. So they would gather these wildflowers from the fields. They would dry out, and they would fire up their pottery ovens. But it was just kindling. It would just disappear in a hurry. These are temporary things, really. But God cares about those. And if he does, he says, will he not much more do so for you? If God dressed the wildflowers with such exquisite beauty, then he will certainly dress his children with the garments they need. Now, did you hear the word need? I didn't say want, so you may not get Armani and Versace and whatever all that cool stuff is. You might just get Kmart and Walmart, but it'll do the job, right? That's the idea. He's going to provide for our needs. And here it is. Again, keep your seatbelts fastened. Oh, men of little faith. In the Greek, literally, you little faiths. It's a rebuke. He's doing it out of love, by the way. Even though it stings, a loving doctor will apply something to an infected wound that stings, but he's doing it as a good thing, not a bad thing. That's what's going on here. The root of worry then, according to Jesus, is a weak faith. So worry is unbelief. See how he's exposing it? It's true nature. And so what's worrying you right now, my dear friend? All of us probably came in with some worries. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to assume most of us here have received Christ as Savior. And if you haven't, that's the one thing Jesus, your creator, said you must do. Trust him by faith. But assuming most of us are trusting our eternal destiny into the hands of God, isn't it interesting that we can entrust our infinite future to him? but we can't trust him in the here and now to get us a job or get us a meal or whatever the case might be. The temporal stuff, 
In other words, our God's big enough to take care of the eternal stuff, but too small to take care of the temporary stuff? Really? We must not be thinking straight. And by the way, I would argue when we are in a state of unbelief, when we doubt as Christians, it's a state of temporary amnesia. We're forgetting who we are in Christ and whose we are, and we're acting like there is no God. And we're going to talk about what that looks like in a moment. It's not pretty. But here the point is, where's my faith? Where's your faith? Now, life is stressful. We're not going to be naive about it, right? Uh, those of you who have children, I love children, you love children, they're great. It's all good. However, they can add a little stress to life because you do have to worry about bills and tuition and doctors and blah, 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 right? All that stuff. So if you're raising two kids, you've got some stress. Four kids, you've got more stress. <clears throat> if you've got eight kids, you've got some stress in your life, right? Again, it's all good. It's a, it's a full quiver. It's great. But just the way life works out, like I say, there's sicknesses and all that stuff to take care of. Eight kids. Can you imagine that? Now, I'm going to go crazy and add five more. It's eight plus five. Math majors, help me out here. I preach the Bible. I don't do math. Eight plus... Thirteen. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. So, 13 kids. Can you imagine raising 13 kids? Would that bring some stress? I'm going to go crazy and add another five to the 13. 13 plus five, my math scholars. 18. All right. Friends, if you're raising 18 kids, you've got stress. I can't think of anything more stressful except raising 18 kids as a widow. And if you can do a good job with that as a widow without the dad around the home, that's newsworthy. Well, believe it or not, there was a woman who raised 18 kids and did an awesome job. She was a widow, and it was newsworthy. And a reporter went to interview her, uh, and, and the uh, reporter asked her the secret of her success. And here's what she said. I manage so well because I'm in a partnership. Well, that threw this guy for a loop. It's like, wait a minute, you're a widow. Partnership, your husband wasn't even around. He died. I don't get it. Well, she went on to say, many years ago, I said, Lord, I'll do the work, but you do the worrying. And I have not had an anxious care ever since. Now, that's faith. Now, that's an extreme example, right? Because probably most of us don't have 18 kids. If you do, let me know. I will pray double for you. <laughs> but the point is, trusting God, it's a command. So I'm naive enough to think that whenever God gives a command, it's doable. Because if it's not, he's teasing us. So with the command comes the resources, right? The word you're not going to hear from me during this entire sermon is the word easy. I'm not saying any of this is easy but I am saying it's doable. All things are possible with him, right? So in this particular case, Jesus is asking us something that is not easy because all of us probably are in that rut of default mode of worrying about stuff, right? But we want to know why should we not worry? We need some motivators here. And we've looked at some reasons now. Worry is unreasonable. Worry is unbelief. Here's another one. I alluded to this earlier, and that is Worry is unbecoming. It's just not a good look on a Christian. Worry is unbecoming. It's not too attractive. It's not a good commercial for Jesus. Look at verse 31. Do not worry. Where does this preacher get his points from? Is he making this stuff up? Well, I'm going to quote Jesus, verse 31. Do not worry. There it is. 
Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Imagine somebody wringing their hands. What will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? He says, verse 31, do not be anxious then in light of these lessons from nature, from the birds, from the lilies. Do not worry. Why? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. See that in verse 32? Don't miss it. For the Gentiles eagerly seek, notice the word there, all these things. For your heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows that you need all these things. In other words, don't worry about it. These things, by the way, is put in the emphatic position. It's emphasized strongly here. In other words, the world is obsessed with material things. Do you see that on the streets? People are living for stuff. And if you have the NIV, it says there, for the pagans run after these things. They knock themselves out trying to get the world's goods. And it's a competition, basically. Since unbelievers don't have a heavenly father, I mean, from their perspective, right? If you can put on the lenses of an unbeliever, there is no God. And since they don't have a heavenly father to look after their needs, naturally then, they're going to look to material possessions for their security. What's the problem with that? You can lose material possessions, right? Talk to people who live by a river and their house gets flooded out. Or a hurricane, tornado, you name it. Or just thievery or fire. These things are not secure. And yet people look to them as that's their security blanket. Now when Christians don't believe that God will provide, when they worry about their security, they act and look like pagans who have no heavenly father. Worry is unbecoming. It's not a good look for a child of God. That's why Jesus says, do not worry. And there's, there's the response there, the latter part, for your, you see it? For your heavenly father, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Now keep your place, go back to the previous chapter, or actually the earlier part of the chapter. If you go down to verse 7, be Matthew 6 and verse 7. This is when he's about to get into the Lord's Prayer. It says in verse 7, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Don't be like the Gentiles. That's the idea. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Isn't that amazing? So when we worry about whether or not God is aware of our needs... We act like unbelievers, and worry is unbecoming for a Christian. So Jesus says then in verse 33, here's the remedy, if you will, but seek first his kingdom. And by the word, that word first there is not of a series, first this, then that, then that. No, no. First, above all else, your highest priority, seek first, above all else, his kingdom, look for the coming of his kingdom, look for the return of Christ and his righteousness, and we seek his righteousness by submitting to his will. In 610 it says, thy will be done, right, on earth as it is in heaven. And by the way, focusing on his coming is a healthy thing. The church, in, I'm generalizing, but it's true, the church in general has lost sight of the return of Christ, and I think we're paying a price for it because our purview is all horizontal right now, and we need that perspective. It's a corrective. If you knew Christ was coming back in 10 minutes, what would you do? If he's going to walk in here in 10 minutes, pretend with me for a moment, he's going to walk in here in 10 minutes. 
my face would be in the carpet. I'd be repenting of every known sin I can think of. It, that future reality would have a present impact on my life. If we don't focus on those future realities, they are not allowed then to have a present impact on our life. Said another way, if we don't focus on, depending on which scholar you talk to, anywhere from 25 to 33% of the entire Bible, which is prophetic, if we ignore that, we're paying a price whether we know it or not. We may not know it. And I'm just seeing this in the church in general. There's a reason why that's a big chunk of the entire Bible. So he says, all these things, if you focus on his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things shall be added to you. You concentrate on God's kingdom and God's righteousness, Jesus says, and my Father will concentrate on your physical needs. He's got that covered. It's not even a problem. And so therefore, it is unbecoming for God's children to act like pagans who worry about and chase after this world's goods like there is no tomorrow. If we don't get it, we're going to die. Worry is unbecoming. So what's the message? Three words. Do not what? Do not worry. Why? Well, we've seen that worry is unreasonable. Worry is unbelief. Worry is unbecoming. And he gives one more reason, and that is worry is unnecessary. Well, that makes me look like a fool when I worry then, right? Worry is unnecessary. It's the word of Jesus, verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Wow. Look at the phrase there, for tomorrow will care for itself. John Curtis is the founder of the Stress Management Institute. Sounds like it can be managed, and it sounds like this guy knows something about stress if he founded the institute, right? I hear he's worried about his budget. No, I'm just kidding. He's not, he's not, he's not worried at all. I bet he's a very calm and peaceful guy, actually. But anyway, here's what he says. John Curtis, Stress Management Institute. He says, I believe that 90% of stress is brought on, hear it now, by not living in the present moment. Worrying about what has already happened, what is going to happen, or what could happen. Have you ever been there where you invested a lot of emotional energy worrying about such and such a thing, which probably is going to happen somewhere vaguely in the future? Now, I hope that doesn't happen. If that happens, oh, my whole world blows up. It's going to happen. Oh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen on July 3rd at 3 o'clock. And then July 3rd at 3 o'clock shows up and nothing happens. And then we're disappointed. God, I spent all these years investing energy, worrying about this stuff, and it didn't even happen. Nothing blew up. What gives? What, do you want it to blow up? Aren't you glad it didn't? Wasn't that wasted energy and time and distraction? If only you had peace during that time. And isn't God in the future? And if it does blow up, can he handle it? Because he still loves you there, even in the future. He loves you now. He loves you then. Right? The future is in the present of God. I mean, it's hard for us to understand this, but there's no past, present, future if you're in the presence of God in heaven. He's just in the eternal present. I don't even know how to say that, but that's the case. So he's in our future. He already knows what's coming. He can tell you, do you know what you're going to have for lunch uh, 2023 on July the 2nd? I don't. God does. He's got us covered. There's nothing to worry about here. 
And so we worry unnecessarily about a lot of stuff. Concern, as I said, that's a different thing. You should be concerned about certain things and, and take precaution for that. But don't get high blood pressure. Don't toss and turn. The best way to face the future is to do what? To pray, to plan, and to faithfully fulfill today's responsibilities, right? Again, most of those future calamities that we worry about, they never actually come to pass. It is a case of all that worry for nothing. And Jesus even points out, if you're going to worry about anything, and he doesn't suggest you do, he says, each day has enough trouble of its own. You've got enough to be worried about today. Why borrow from the future? Why torment yourself with tomorrow's troubles? Live in the present. Hear the word now. It's a helpful word, very hopeful. Learn. We can learn. We can learn. Learn to rely upon God's daily provision. You say, well, preacher, this is tough stuff. I didn't say it was easy. Now, don't look for perfection. It's not like, you know, three days from now, you're never worried again. If you get there, God bless, you may. But would you at least, admit, I'm going to go with the bare minimum now. Can you at least admit that all of us, self-included, can at least grow in this area? Even if it ended up being that if you could measure this somehow, at the end of the week, you know what? I clocked all this and I worried a half hour less this entire, I worried this week, but a half hour less. And then six months later, hey, I worried about an hour less. And hey, I notice I'm worrying less and less. I still worry, but I'm not 24-7 in worry. I'm making progress here. I've got more windows of peace in my life. That's what I mean by progress. All of us can at least do that, right? We at least should want to do that, I hope. And so our Lord tells us that worry is unnecessary. Now, I've been here long enough that you probably think, this guy's a little strange, and I would agree with you, I am. Everybody has their hobbies, you name it, painting, music, sports, whatever it is, photography, all kinds of hobbies. I've got an interesting hobby, and mine is, and that's why I think I'm strange, is I like to study sermons from church history. I do this for fun. I love history. I especially love church history, and I love preaching. You put those together, you got a beautiful marriage there. So I like going all the way back and all the way forward, checking out some of the great preachers through, what, 2,000 years of history, right? Augustine, you name them. And so one of my favorites is one, I'm sure you heard of him, one Martin Luther from the Reformation era. The reason I like him is he has a very vigorous and direct style, and I honestly think young people would love him if they could somehow hear his sermons today, because he's, I mean it in a good sense, but he's kind of in your face. I mean, he just lays it right out there. You don't really have to be an Einstein to figure it out, and he's very vigorous, right? And I've noticed through the years that all of these preachers are influenced by other preachers. They all have their model, one or two guys they look up to to say, man, that, that guy's my hero, right? I've often wondered who Martin Luther's preaching hero is. And doing a lot of research, I finally found it. And I, I'm, I'm going to quote him here. This is Martin Luther talking about his favorite preacher of all time. Is it Augustine? Is it Bernard of Clairvaux? Here it is. Luther said, I have one preacher that I love better than any other on earth. It is my little tame Robin, which preaches to me daily. I put his crumbs on the windowsill. He hops on the sill and takes as much as he needs. From there, he always flies away to a little tree close by, and he lifts up his voice to God, sings his song of praise and gratitude, tucks his head under his wing, and then goes to sleep, leaving tomorrow 
to take care of itself. Now, that's one biblical bird, right? <laughs> Martin Luther says, he is the best preacher I have on earth. Just like Jesus, he says, look at the birds. You can learn from them. Nature is a wonderful teacher of all kinds of stuff. God created all these things, right? An even better preacher, Peter, once wrote, and if you want it, it's 1 Peter 5, 7. Listen carefully. It's the Word of God. Casting all, not some, not most, all, casting all, and if you check that out in the Greek, you're going to find out that word actually means all. <laughs> casting all your anxiety upon Him. Why? Because He, take it in now, don't block it. Dear friend, we got Jesus' word on it. He cares for you. Yes, you, not the other person, you. He cares for you. Yes, yeah, but preacher, if you knew what I did last week, He knows. He knows what you did 20 years ago and you forgot about it. And he, and he knows what you're going to do 10 years from now. And he still loves you right now. Hear me. He cares for you. Yes, you. He knows all about you. He loves you with an unlimited love. And you can't run from that and don't. Have the courage and the faith to embrace it. He loves you. Now, if he loves you that much and he has all the resources at his disposal, do the math. Whatever need you might throw up that you're worried about, he's got it covered, does he not? He doesn't withhold good things from his children. In fact, he keeps the bad things away. And he gives us, here it now, what we need. Not, you, you might get mad at him, well, he didn't give me this. I wanted a Maserati for Monday, a Jaguar for Tuesday, a Mercedes for Wednesday, and this color, and he didn't give me those things. He's withholding the goods. Well, wait a minute now. Are those really needs? He takes care of our needs. In other words, what Peter is saying here, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. The short way of saying that is do not worry. Why? Because worry is unreasonable. Worry is unbelief. Worry is unbecoming. And worry, dear friends, think about it, it's unnecessary. And so, you know I'm a professor. I can't help myself. I give out assignments. Ready for some homework? I will not grade you. I'll let the Lord take care of that. You know, honestly, I really believe your worry can be turned into a prayer prompter if you work on this. And so when you start to worry, you can train yourself like an alarm clock. It's time to pray. Uh-oh, I'm getting worried. It's time to pray. Oh, I'm getting worried. It's time to pray. Just keep doing that. You can train yourself. You can get better at this. And so whenever you begin to worry, pray, Lord, please reveal the cause and the nature of my worry. Lord, please reveal the cause. It's good to know what that cause is. And the nature of my worry. And then ask yourself the following question. These are diagnostic questions. Here we go. Is my worry reasonable? Now, be honest about it. Is my worry reasonable? Am I worried because I do not believe God? Be honest about it. You don't have to tell anybody else in your own heart. Think this through. Is my worry an attractive testimony for my Lord? Is my worry, I want you to list about 20 things here. Is my worry necessary? I want to see your list. If you could even one item on there, I'd be interested to see what that is. Is my worry necessary? That should be an empty list. What is my worry accomplishing? 
What is it accomplishing? Think about it. Nothing good that I know of. And then pray, Lord, please take from me the source of my worry. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus tells us with a heart full of infinite love, do not worry. Instead, trust God. Let's speak to him in prayer. Father, you're so good to us. You tell us the tough things that we need to hear. And we know your heart. You do it out of love for us. Thank you for caring enough to tell us things that are hard to take in, and yet we know deep within are good for us. So I pray for myself and all my friends here that at least incrementally we would get some progress and some victory in this area as we intentionally lean on your spirit, as we rely upon your grace to work through us to displace fear with faith so that you might receive greater glory that we might be a blessing to others, and that we might even grow and benefit spiritually as well. We commit all these things to you. Pursue us in the days ahead for your glory and for the blessing of others. We pray it in Jesus' name and all my friends said, amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.